This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's another day and another Patrick Brown story. Uh, this seems to be one almost daily now about what's happening with uh, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Leadership Campaign. There was speculation spreading this morning on social media that Patrick Brown was considering dropping out of the race, which is rather interesting given the fact that the story yesterday was that Patrick Brown did his own internal polling and says he's winning this thing. So what's going on here? Richard Brennan joins us, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years, and always a welcome guest. How are you doing this morning, Richard? Just fine. How can you keep up with all this stuff? I'm having trouble myself. It just changes almost by the hour. Well, uh, you, you, well, each day brings a new drama, and I, I you know, this uh, Patrick Brown is starting to sound like a drama queen, quite frankly. You know, one minute, yeah, like you say, you know, they have a poll, internal polling, saying he's He's pulling ahead. He's doing very well. And then he comes up with some cockamamie story about, you know, he, he might have to resign, uh, drop out of the leadership because his uh, girlfriend's being threatened and uh, there's families having problems. And, and I thought, you know, I got, like, what more craziness can you introduce into this whole leadership race? But everybody jumps on board. I mean, you saw the stuff on social media this morning, and uh, some pretty respected journalists, Steve Pakin and John Iverson and Don Martin, and and everybody's jumping in on this. I mean, because this is, this is news. And I started to wonder after a while, uh, is this a legitimate story, or is this just a very well-crafted uh, public relations campaign to make sure there's a Patrick Brown story every day? Well, if it is, it's, it's, it's an absolutely crazy approach to try and get your name out in the media because I think uh, um, Jamie Watt in the Toronto Star on Sunday introduced, you know, said the best. Basically, yeah, you're getting your name out, but you're coming across like, you know, like a madman. And, and that's not good. You know, I mean, the old adage that, you know, there's no such thing as good, you know, bad publicity. Well, that's not true. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I mean, ask Justin Trudeau after his trip to yeah, India. Oh, Jesus. And, and now this stuff with Patrick Brown. There, there can be stuff that just, it sticks with on you. And, and boy, it's, it's hard to get that off once it happens. And I'm wondering just what is going on in, in the Patrick Brown camp. Just as you and I are talking, just like seconds ago, uh, Steve Pakin tweets again that says, despite the denials, uh, he hears that uh, he's going to drop. Brown's going to drop out of the race later on this morning. So well, I mean, it, on and on it goes. Well, yeah, I heard in the early morning as I was going to gym that you know he he was uh, he was pro- thinking about dropping out because of this uh, you know this this so-called threat on his girlfriend and and, and several other things. And then he de- I heard the second story saying, oh, he's not, he's decided he's weighed all these options and he's standing in. But now you say he's, he's getting out. Like, like, what is it? You know, just, you know, you know what? Your reputation's in tatters. Step back, get out, and, you know, and, you know, uh, try and, try and collect yourself and protect, protect your reputation, what, what little is left. But no, he's going out and he's 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 throwing gasoline on every fire he can think of. It just it makes absolutely no sense. The wordsmithing here I find intriguing. Uh, the story leaked out that said a source, and that's that's always how these things start. A source, an unnamed source, said he was considering dropping out. Then, of course, there came the the quasi denial. Uh, and, and the way they worded it, I thought was rather interesting, Richard. They said that he has not dropped out. They didn't say he wasn't thinking about it or he wasn't going to do it, that he has not dropped out. 
which which kind of leaves that door open, I guess. And I, I just I, I just wonder if these guys are just playing games here. It's it's a it's it's a it's a game of folly. That's what it is. I mean, if he is playing games, I mean, what's what's the end game other than making yourself look like a fool? And so far, my impression, that's exactly what he's done. I don't know why he climbed back into the ring again. You know, he's 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 saying these you know allegations are not true. Okay, fine. Well, go you know take whatever action you have to try and to put your reputation back to your together again. But no, he's it really absolutely doesn't make a lick of sense. And I think in the end, he has just done so much damage to his reputation that it, it will basically, he can't recover from it. I was interested in the story yesterday uh, about his internal polling. And, you know, I guess everybody who's running for any kind of office at one point releases a story like that that says, hey, I'm winning, I'm winning. But the story seemed to indicate that, that he had uh, the the respect and the support of a growing number in the PC caucus, which I, I find rather interesting since a month ago they deep-sixed him. Uh, and they also said that he was tied neck and neck with Brenda Elliott. Uh, Brenda Elliott's not running for the leadership. Uh, Christine Elliott's running for the leadership, but I mean, th- this is supposed to be a, a a a team, a Patrick Brown team, with with lots of federal experience and provincial experience, and these guys have really got their act together. Uh, they even blew the press release. <laughs> well, they misspelled in their in their uh, they filed a lawsuit uh, with with against CTV, and one of the people that they're alleging to have been involved into this lawsuit by uh, on behalf of CTV. They spelled her name wrong. No, the, yeah, it just, it's just one calamity after the next. The thing is that I, you and I, I think, agreed at the very beginning that this race, to have a leadership race, would introduce, reintroduce the Progressive Conservative Party back to the public again. And, and, Get you know get earned what they call earned media, but I think the whole thing has just been disastrous now. I mean, who could imagine that the guy that you boot out is going to is going to run again, and then he says he's not going to run again, then he is going to run again, and it's an absolute joke. So what's what's this doing to the race itself? I mean, you know, let's let's look uh, ahead a couple of days here, and it is only a couple of days, Richard, uh, when they start voting on this thing. Uh, and March tenth, of course, is when they're going to make the announcement. Uh, and and nobody seems to be talking an awful lot about issues or about policies or anything else. It's the, it's the Patrick Brown show. Well, he's just distracted from what could have been a great course they were following, and that was going out having a leadership. And then, you know, getting their names, getting their individual names out there. So the public can say, well, you know, you know, if this person's elected, you know, I might support them, you know, in the general option. But no, it's become a sideshow. If I was a liberal, I would just be rubbing my hands with glee. But, but the numbers seem, the numbers seem to indicate there's another uh, story over the weekend. I think it was the National Post that said that uh, that Doug Ford could lead them to victory in a majority, even in Toronto. And well, maybe in Toronto because of the the name, the right name recognition there. But are are they sitting back right now, just figuring we can do whatever we want? And we're still going to win this thing. Is that their attitude? Well, if it is, they're crazy. They're absolutely out of their minds if they think they can sit on the sidelines 
and they'll just cruise to victory. Okay, we, we all know that the Liberals are, you know, in dire straits in terms of, you know, po- uh, popular support. But it isn't election time. It's all well and good to have polls and saying that, you know, this party or that party is leading prior to an election. Well, we've seen that before. We saw it last election that the conservatives were destined to win, the progressive conservatives. Well, they didn't. Well, and the one before that. Yeah. And so the, it's really, it's, it's great, it's great uh, you know, fodder for you and I to talk about on the radio about this or that poll. It's, it's fun. But the point is, it's, the pre-election stuff is meaningless. Let's let's remind everyone too, though, Richard, about something that you're well versed in, and that's news cycles. Uh, right now, as you mentioned, Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals are just sitting back and watching uh, the self-destruction that's going on here, and, and, and the, the tire fire, as some people have described it, with the, which is the, the leadership race. But they're going to get the hammer pretty soon because they're going to announce a budget, and it's a provincial budget, and they're a majority government, so whatever they are going to announce, of course, they're going to pass. And you've got to know that a couple of months before the election, uh, there's going to be some good news in there. At least they're going to perceive it to be good news. And that's going to take over that news cycle. I mean, the Conservatives right now own the lead story on the front page on just about every newspaper and radio station in Ontario. And, and I guess the question you have to ask, are they making maximum use of that? No. Well, this is a time for the progressive conservatives, as we said you know, prior to this, this is a time for them to shine. This was a time for them to reintroduce themselves to the public and say, we are prepared to govern. Just look at us. You know, we've got the solid benches, et cetera, et cetera. And no, so all that, that what, what, what should have been a positive message has turned into scrambled eggs. How do you turn that around if you're if you're sitting right there in, in in that office right now and you're trying to run an election campaign? Well, first a leadership campaign, and then and then all of a sudden you've got to change gears and get into election mode. It's it, they can't be thinking it's going well. Well, if they are, they're they're delusional. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I still, I mean, let's face it, you know, there's the liberals are unpopular there's still a chance for them to pull this off. But with each and every day a new drama happening, one way or the other, usually involving Brown, it just deflects attention from the real purpose, and that's to prepare yourself for this June's election. And when, you, when you're dealing with putting out fires all around you, you're not dealing with the, the matters at hand that could put you into power. But with the uh, the Patrick Brown stories and the, the plethora of Patrick Brown stories that we've had, uh, with such a short time frame and such a short leadership campaign, uh, I'm not hearing much, and I don't think anyone else is hearing much. I mean, I scan newspapers, other uh, you know news outlets all over the province. Uh, I'm not hearing much about uh, about Caroline Mulroney. I'm not I'm not hearing much about Christine Elliott, who's supposedly winning this thing. Are are, are they just are they working you know behind the scenes here? Are they under the radar? But uh, you would think this is a golden opportunity for them to to shine and say, "Look at me!" Yet I'm not I'm not seeing that. Yeah, look at me! I'm not crazy. Uh, you know, but I heard Caroline Mulroney openly said that she should she thinks they all should drop out of the leadership and let her be the leader. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure she thinks that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure she does too. But would you say something that out loud? That's your inside voice. 
you know, you don't say stuff like that. It just makes you look imperious. When do they start jumping on and piling on on Patrick Brown? I mean, Mulroney was the only one that has suggested, at least so far, that Brown needs to step down uh, for the good of the party. She made that announcement, I think, on Thursday of last week. Uh, nothing from the Elliott camp, nothing from the uh, the Ford camp on that. But at some point, uh, do they do they simply let this guy, you know, self destruct and do what he's doing right now, or do they simply say, "Look, at he's taking the, the limelight away from us, and that's hurtful to the party." Well, it, he is, but what do you do about it? I mean, they said he could run, which I think was the right decision. Otherwise, there would have been further civil war. But what do you do? The guy is just. Is he, is he determined to destroy the party because it's not going his way? It's starting to look like that more and more each day, that he doesn't care about this leadership. He doesn't care about the party. He just wants to see how much chaos he can create. And so when that's going on, it's hard to focus. It's hard for the, the various camps to focus and, and, and show, the, show the public who you really are, when this sideshow is going on. But on March 10th, that's that's the end date to this whole thing. I mean, that's when the conservatives are going to announce their new leader. It's at, uh, I think, the convention center in Markham, if I recall. And, uh, you know, and you know the scene, because they always do this after the winner is announced or selected or however they're going to do this. Uh, they'll all be up there, and they'll all be holding hands, and there's that picture of, oh, let's make this unanimous, etc. This does not sound like a party that's on the same page right now. Well, I think they, quite frankly, I think they are. I, I, you know, I don't expect Ford to win despite the blather from Ford Nation. And, and, and uh, Christine, I think, well, in the end, will take it because she's, so far, she seems like, she seems a solid person to pass the torch to. You know, Moroni's not ready. Uh, you know, and I don't even remember the other the woman that recently joined. I don't remember her name. Uh, and the thing is that she is the, to me, at, from as observer, the, is the obvious choice. But whether whether that happens or not, we'll we'll, uh, we'll see. Like you say, it's just a matter of days now. Uh, but I I just can't. You know, I I, I got to tell you, Bill, I just can't believe. This has happened. I mean, this is this is what I say is say to you know young reporters. You couldn't make this up. It's that it's that wild. It's that so bizarre. We should, by the way, put that in context. When I talk about the PC party being in disarray, uh, I've talked to some insiders from both the NDP and the Ontario Liberals. And, and first of all, we already know that there's some huge fractures in the Liberal Party. Uh, not everybody is a big Kathleen Wynne fan in that caucus. And uh, talking to some of the NDP insiders, they were saying this is probably Andrea Horvath's last kick at the can as party leader. And uh, they figure if they don't do as well as they want to do in this election, that uh, I think the phrase he used was they're going to Howard Hampton her, uh, which basically means thanks for all the good times. Now, please don't let the door hit you on the way out. So well, it, yeah. this is this is a pretty important election for the leaders. Well, they all have their problems. What the liberals have to their advantage if they're what little advantage they have left is that they are the power, they are the government, and they hold the, they hold the purse strings, as you pointed out with the budget. So you know they can bring things in that budget that will make people sit up and take notice, whether they do or not is another thing. But and so 
the other powers are not the other parties aren't playing from a position of strength, particularly the progressive conservatives right now with the with the insanity that's with, with the insanity that's going on. Well, uh, I'll probably call you back in an hour when all this changes, and we'll yeah, see what can happen there. <laughs> Richard, thanks as always. Pleasure talking with okay. you again. Thanks, Bill. Richard Bye. Brennan, of course, uh, covered Queen's Park for many, many years uh, and is scratching his head like most of us are, trying to find out exactly what's going on and why. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Some concern being raised. I got a few emails about this over the weekend. Uh, about these uh, digital signs that are going up along the link in the Red Hill. As a matter of fact, there's a bunch of them going up in different parts of the city over the last little while. I've noticed them uh, being erected, and uh, I guess some of them are operational right now. And and the reason why is because this is not the first time that this discussion happened at City Hall. Uh, from the moment the link opened, way back in the late 1990s, uh, there was some suggestion at that time that, hey, you know, we should allow advertising. It's a great revenue generator for the city. And staff at that time gave it a big thumbs down and said, absolutely not. It's a, it's a distraction. Uh, we don't want that sort of thing up there, so it's just not going to happen. And, and various councillors over the years have brought the issue back, and council always gave it a thumbs down. Now they're up there, which begs the question, uh, have they changed their minds? Are these not as dangerous as we had thought they are. Are they not the visual distraction that somebody had articulated before? Or is it just because, well, there's a lot of money involved now? Donna Skelly is the counselor for our Ward 7 up at the Central Mountain, right smack dab in the middle of the link. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about these. How are you doing this morning, Donna? I'm great. How are you? Good. Uh, just uh, uh, right off the top, your thoughts about actually having advertising along the link in the Red Hill at all, uh, just on a philosophical basis, for it or against it? For it. Why? I think that uh, that they can be done. I've I've sat with staff and they showed me how the um, the sign is is uh, is, is uh, constructed, how it um, impacts drivers. There are so many regulations when they erect these signs. It's not just a sign, a large sign with no consideration whatsoever on the impact of the driver, distraction, etc. There's a huge science behind it, and there's a lot of work and a lot of regulations. Uh, we see them on the Gardner. We see them all across, you know, on, on highways right across the country. And I don't think that our problem on the Red Hill and the Link is necessarily this sign that could be a distraction. We have bigger issues, and um, I do believe that we have problems with more so the Red Hill than the Link, but I don't think that... the Putting up these signs is going to contribute to that in any way. I think that they are exclusive of each other. We can deal with the problems with the Red Hill, the construction of the Red Hill, the lack of barriers uh, dividing the lines. It has nothing to do with putting up signs on the link. Uh, and I'm on side with you on that. As a matter of fact, I was one of the people on council way back when that suggested we do this, and, and staff, let's just say, just pushed back immediately. And I know that uh, Councillor Marula years ago uh, actually put it into a motion and, and tried to get it going, and I guess it didn't get any traction either. So i, I got to ask you then, Donna, because I'm sure this came up during the discussion at council at committee level, why did staff change their mind on this? Because they were so adamantly opposed to it in the past. I'm not sure. I've been on council for a couple of years, and I know that when I um, was elected, one of the first meetings I had was to discuss the erection of these signs. But Trust me, there is a huge science behind it, how they're tilted, the uh, amount of illumination. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a lot of thought that goes into these signs. They are not meant to distract drivers. They're placed in specific areas. We've had a lot of requests from the private sector to put these signs up. They've been 
uh, disallowed on many, many, many occasions because of that very thought, uh, that concern of, of distracting drivers. Uh, we are making some money from it, which I like. I also think that um, they can provide a service. Uh, it's, it's very, in this day and age, businesses have, um, have to market their product and traditional media is, is not necessarily meeting all of their needs and this is just another opportunity. I don't think that these signs will necessarily uh, impact safety on the highway. I think we do have a problem on the Red Hill, but disallowing digital signs will not make the Red Hill safer. They're very, they're, they're issues that are exclusive of each other and we can't complicate the two. The, these signs, as I said, a lot of work and a lot of thought has gone into where they're being placed and how they display the images. And that is not going to, in my opinion, contribute to um, problems on the highway. But we do have problems on our highway. Oh yeah, they well, need to be addressed. We'll get to that in a second. Because uh, I guess the question, when, when it gets, to get back to the advertising, is where do you draw the line? Uh, I mean, is it technically a, 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 an impairment? I'm not so sure. Is it a distraction? I suppose it could be, but I mean, you know, is listening to the radio a distraction when you're driving? Sure. I suppose you could say, it's, 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 it's all a coffee. level of degree It's it, it, when you get down to it. Uh, I think if you put up a still billboard on the highway or anywhere, a, a bench advertising when you're driving, if it catches your attention, it catches your attention. That's what advertising does. Um, I don't think that, that they necessarily are going to be a problem. They're done, you know, these signs uh, exist elsewhere in every city that I've been in, and I don't think that we are necessarily creating additional problems. We're simply more or less catching up with the times and, and generating a bit of revenue. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, which I think was the intention all the way along. Why not cash in on that? Because there are people that are willing to do that, and, and I think municipalities have that, that, that ability and that right to be able to do that. And, 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 and by the way, I guess maybe to answer the question I asked you a few minutes ago, I guess keep in mind also uh, that when we talked about doing this, uh, this was back around 1998-1999, uh, that's almost 20-odd years ago now, and uh, a lot, most of the people that were on staff there are gone. So different mm-hmm. attitudes, different people, I guess. Maybe that's that's part of the solution and part of the reason for that. But, and the technology has evolved. Uh, sure. Listen, I got a lot of grief. I still remember sitting in a planning meeting when I was on city council years and years ago about somebody that wanted to put a digital sign up on Upper James just by the link. Uh, and it was on the side of a building. And uh, there was all sorts of pushback there. Oh, you can't. People will be driving off the road. and you know. <laughs> Come on. I mean, give people a little more credit than that. As you say, they're everywhere. All along the roads, and there, and so why not on the link in the Red Hill? And that's, I think, the least of our problems. Uh, distracted driving these days is not defined as having a, a digital sign. It's it's looking at your phone while you're supposed to be driving and doing texting and talking on the phone. And I still see more and more of that going on. So let's talk about the safety issue, uh, and let's talk about barriers, which I think are the real problems. Because I know that when they got into that, the staff came back and said, "Well, we're going to put cat's eyes there and some better lighting, etc." And I've seen some evidence of that, and that's all well and good. But I still have a problem with the, this, this decision not to go with barriers between the, the uphill and the downhill or between the east and westbound on these roadways. Why are they being, again, so adamant about this and refusing to do it? I don't know. I, I don't know if it's just a cost. I agree with you 100%. I think we should have barriers up, and I think that there are other issues we need to look at. There's something about the Red Hill that is causing problems. I don't know what it is. I'm not an engineer. But 
putting up a barrier to separate the two sides of the road, in my opinion, is something we should be doing. There have been too many accidents and too many close calls to not go forward with this. Um, staff will perhaps argue that it's unnecessary. I've heard some counselors argue they're unnecessary, they are costly. I really think we should move forward with it. I would like to see barriers put up. I'd also like to see more investigation as to the safety of that roadway. I don't know what it is, but there is something about it that people feel unsafe on it. And we need to address that. I remember the flash flooding. Uh, people say that the um, exit ramps and entry, entry ramps are, are uh, difficult to maneuver. Perhaps they are. I, I'm not sure what it is. But clearly there is something that is causing problems on that highway. And we should take a second look at it. But there's a lot of pushback. Yeah, but Donna, they're fudging numbers here. And this is the thing that I get frustrated about. Uh, you know, for instance, they're saying, well, only about 5% of the, uh, the collisions that occur on the Red Hill and the Lake are, are because of cars that cross over into the oncoming lane. Uh, boy, if, but if I could institute something that was going to have a 5% reduction, I'd, I'd probably jump out and do it. But there have been 12 people killed. Mm-hmm. 12 people killed in collisions on those two roadways. Half of them are crossover collisions. So there's six lives that might have sa- been saved if we had these things in here. I, I, I had occasion with Rebecca and I went down to Windsor a week or so ago, and there's a stretch in the 401 between London and Windsor. It's one of those worst stretches to drive because it's so boring and monotonous. But I noticed anyway that there's no barrier. There isn't just about every other section of that highway, but not that section. And I thought, well, this is kind of odd. They just have the grass barrier like we do here with the link. So I looked into it, and I found out that the province has actually responded to that, and they're going to install them there because they said there are so many accidents where people are crossing over into oncoming traffic. So they see the sense in this. I can't understand why the city doesn't. And by the way, you drive just as fast on that highway as people do on the link in the Red Hill. Posted limit of 90 means you can get away doing 100, and that's what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Well, you know, reducing the speed to me is not the solution. I don't want to see us you know, reducing the speed. And I don't think red light cameras are the, are the solution either. Uh, I don't believe 90 is, is excessive speed on that highway. I don't. Uh, I do believe that there's something wrong. Now, I understand that they're actually checking the, um, the components within uh, the pavement itself, that there's some, perhaps some, I think they used some sort of a new um, formula when they were paving it, and that's being checked. Putting up barriers, to me, is a a very simple solution. You said 12 people were killed. Could you imagine if one of those people was a loved one of yours? You would want us to be more proactive and to to look at preventing further deaths. But there's pushback. Part of the problem, I think, Bill, and and, and you recall this from your days on on city council, there's so little uh, attention paid to issues beyond the downtown core. We are so focused on the inner city and we really don't i don't think we give enough attention to other parts of the city this is there are a lot of cars on that highway i was driving my son to work uh this morning and and tried to while i was heading the opposite direction but just at the 403 and the link traffic was backed up miles so there are issues that with traffic around the city and not necessarily the downtown core but they don't get the priority that other issues get. And I think that that's one of the big issues. We have to spend the money if it's going to save lives. And I think prevent not just lives, but people have been hurt. 
a lot of money involved in accidents. Let's do what we can and be proactive about it and put up those barriers. As uh, Alexa just uh, emails, uh, listening to our conversation, bkelly900chml.com, and says, as I recall, uh, staff were against having extra lighting around the top of the Red Hill then because they said it would be uh, detrimental to some of the wildlife there. Apparently, they're okay with it now, uh, just as they seem to be now with the advertising. It just seems as if uh, when people fit, put a few bucks on the line and said, okay, now they're going to start to push back on this, then all of a sudden they, 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 they change their opinions on these things. Uh, which tells me, and I made this prediction a couple of months ago, that inevitably, I, I predicted then and I predict now, that we are going to have barriers on those roadways. I don't know why they're doing it or not doing it at this stage, but at some point they're going to give in and say, you're right, it was probably the smart thing to do. So why delay it? That, that's what I don't understand. Some council members don't want it. And, I, I, and for the life of me, they argue that it, it won't make any difference at all, that it's speed, Red, uh, red light cameras will be fine. I don't think that's the solution. I would like to see barriers put up. And actually also have another study on, on the, um, the safety of that highway. There are just too many people have mentioned to me personally that they, they are worried about driving on that particular stretch, the Red Hill more than the Link. The Link doesn't bother me as much. But then again, I, I, I don't know why we don't have barriers on, on the Link as well. Um, you know, everything from deer crossing, and I've seen deer uh, cause accidents, and people crossing the highway as well, but the Red Hill seems to be the hot spot for, uh, for traffic problems and design problems. Well, it's a matter of public safety, and, and for them to suggest that speed is an issue, I don't disagree with that. I, I get that. Of course it is. But it's a little duplicitous for the councillors to be wagging their finger and saying, you people just need to slow down. I mean, each and every one of those councillors probably speeds through the city. I don't think they're doing 40 or 50 kilometers through the city streets. And if they're on the link, don't tell me that you're doing 90. I mean, come on. Let's, we know or that people 80. are going to go a little bit faster. Not, not everybody is reckless about it, but they do go a little bit faster. And, and to suggest that, well, if everybody just did the speed limit, everything would be fine, I think is a very naive approach. I agree. I agree 100%. And I think that we, we need to move traffic, perhaps expanded lanes. That's going to be, you know, a, a, certainly something that's going to take an awful lot of money. But this is an area, this is something that we have to find the funding for. But when you're, um, you've only got two or three councillors that are arguing on, on because of their, their um, involvement in this area and the fact that their constituents live in this area, uh, the rest of the council doesn't seem to really take it as, as or make it much of a priority. That could be it. I think that I suspect that that's a big part of it. Um, and, and, but to argue that a barrier separating a divider, separating the two highways is not going to be a solution to this problem, I think is very short-sighted. I think it would certainly help. And I think not just prevent one life, I think it could prevent the deaths uh, you know, I don't want to hear of another accident and somebody crossing the highway and causing a fatality because I think it's shameful that we haven't been more proactive in, in erecting these barriers. I've talked to the families of, of the some of the people that, that have died in these accidents, and I know that some of them have made presentations before council and committee, and I think it's a slap in the face to suggest that, well, it wouldn't make much difference. Six people lost their lives uh, because there, some vehicle crossed over into oncoming traffic and caused a head-on collision. That's six people that are dead now. That does make a difference. That could have been prevented if those barriers had been in place. That's yes, not to say there wouldn't have been a collision someplace else, but maybe it wouldn't have been fatal. Uh, it certainly wouldn't have been a head-on collision. I, exactly, and, and we all probably know of someone who's, who's suffered a loss through such an accident. I have. I know of, of uh, uh, some young people who lost their lives 
that I believe could have been prevented had um, uh, some sort of a, a barrier been erected at that time. Uh, it, it's it's terrible. It's unfortunate. And again, as I said, it's short-sighted. We have a responsibility to ensure that the highways that we build are safe. If we're simply asking for a a divider, a separator between those two uh, east or the, the two lanes, then I think that we should be doing it. We really should be looking at it. These families are pleading for us to do this. They're, they're citing personal examples of, of lives lost because of accidents involving vehicles crossing over and through that grass and onto the next, uh, onto the other side of the road. And I agree with them. I think that if we can if we could erect these and there yes it would there is a cost to it but i think it's money that's well spent how we convince council to move forward on it there seems to be a resistance that it's not going to make a difference and i'm not sure where that's coming from perhaps staff have some sort of information that that i'm unaware of but i think that this would be it, it just seems so logical that this would be something that could prevent future fatalities right at the top of stony creek mountain i i, I know we're getting off the topic, but I mean, we, we, it, this is about safety, and I think it's all under that same umbrella. I think it's First Road, which is right past uh, Highway 20, uh, and Ridge Road. Uh, there is now a b- still a big barrier that's erected at the end of that road because it's, it stops right at Ridge Road. That was the result of one one incident where somebody sadly drove right through that and, and over the it's a scarp and, and, was, and was killed. And that was one life, and it was a tragedy. So they responded to it, and they did something to try to prevent that from happening again. Why don't they take the same attitude with both the accidents and the fatalities and the collisions that are occurring on the Red Hill and the Link? If you save one life, then it's worth it. I mean, I'm tired of hearing staff and and counselors saying, well, it's it's a waste of money. Really? What's the cost of not doing it? It's a loss of life. I'd also like to know the cost of doing it. You know, let's find out what it does cost, and let's just build it into there are certain things we have to do. We have, we have uh, a responsibility to ensure that what we build is safe. And clearly there is an issue with this section of, more so, as I said, the Red Hill. Let's deal with it. And if it means we actually erect these barriers um, every year, we add a section, then let's do it. But let's at least make an effort to be proactive to address what is a problem on that particular highway. Uh, is it going to take the families of more victims to come forward and, and plead with us? Perhaps that's what it will take. Um, maybe that's what we should be seeing more of, more lobbying on behalf of, of these families. Uh, sometimes that's uh, the most impactful and effective way of getting change at City Hall. It's unfortunate, but uh, I mean, we can, I, I don't know why there's such resistance to it, I'm sure money is a big part of it, but we have to do something. We can't allow it to continue to have this many flaws and not as and 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 not as a council um, address these issues. It's our responsibility. I think we should take action. I think we should be far more proactive. Ward Seven Councillor Donna Skelly. Donna, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Anytime. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's been a while since the uh, Guaranteed Income uh, Project, the pilot project, has uh, been in place here in Hamilton and Thunder Bay. And uh, a little later on, it started uh, in Lindsay, Ontario, near Peterborough. Uh, How's it going? I mean, they're tracking this. We know that. And uh, this is, by definition, a pilot project, which means they need to gather some information 
as to whether or not they can make this a full-time program. Uh, to get some insight into what's going on right now, we want to welcome Laura Kateri to the program. She is the chair of the Social Policy Working Group for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the program again. Good to talk to you again, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the project and, and what has gone on. I know that there was some consternation uh, when this was initiated, even when it was announced by the, the provincial government, about how effective this was going to be. Uh, I, now, I know this is going to go on for quite some time, but I mean, with the data that you've collected so far, give me your read on what you see is happening. Well, we don't have the official data. Uh, the evaluators are on board, and they're doing their um, first sets of surveys uh, coming in, um, basically baseline readings. But what we have heard um, are actually stories from people in Hamilton, local communities. And the overwhelming response already is that they're less stressed. And quite frankly, no surprise (laughs) that, you know, having enough money to pay for food and rent um, makes you more comfortable and able to participate. What's interesting about this, and, and I know that you and Tom Cooper and others that were involved in this and were advocating for this, uh, have been in studio here, and we've talked about uh, what we wanted to see out of this. And and what I'm, I'm glad to see is when the province is doing the tracking on this, and by the way, part of that's being done right here at McMaster University. They're one of the agencies that's that's working on this and collecting the data and going to analyze this at some point. Uh, is they're not just looking at, say, okay, uh, Laura's making more money than us, so she's had, that's good, that's part of that. But they're also tracking other things like health, uh, like well-being, uh, crime statistics. In other words, they, they, we understand now that poverty and, and, and you know, some of the side elements of poverty are very, very contributory to some of the other problems that we're facing in community. And uh, the feeling was that if they can address that with this program, that it's going to alleviate some of those other concerns. And, uh, and, and I'm going to be really interested to see what, what those numbers look like. It's a little premature, I guess, to, to speculate on this, but uh, what you're hearing so far sounds pretty positive. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it is only a three-year pilot. So some of the long-term changes that would come with this, we, we won't be able to see. But some of them are already starting to take shape. Um, we've started a bit of a speakers bureau for basic income uh, participants. And one of our members, Wendy, uh, has been couch surfing, basically homeless for two years. Um, she was on Ontario Works, but not receiving shelter benefit. So it meant she was getting approximately $300 a month. And while that was enough to contribute towards food and some transportation costs, it wasn't enough to secure an apartment with. And so she has been chronically homeless for two years. Now that she's on the basic income pilot, there is enough money to save, hopefully in the next few weeks, to be able to find an apartment, put first and last down, and start getting on with her life again. And to me, that's huge. We, we talk about homelessness all the time, but we don't realize there, there are no resources available to someone that just wants to say, you know what, I want to get into an apartment, help me. It's interesting in her case, uh, somebody who was a, a couch surfer, I think it was the phrase you used, uh, because oftentimes those people aren't even tracked. They're, they're, not, they're not statistically represented when we talk about things like homelessness because they're kind of going from house to house. 
Uh, so you know, oftentimes they don't get counted, but it's 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 a growing number. I know, especially with youth uh, homelessness. Uh, where this happens, and and obviously in this case, this lady who's in a situation like that, and boy, I guess it's virtually impossible to try to pull yourself out of that without some sort of financial assistance. Oh, absolutely. And what's really interesting with that, um, most couch surfers are actually females. So most of our statistics on homelessness are based on men's experiences. Uh, Women do tend to what we call couch surf, um, you know, stay at a friend's home and literally sleep on their sofa. Um, so, yes, it, I think it can help a huge um, portion of that population move forward. The other thing we need to talk about, and I want to reiterate this because uh, it, it's, I think it's an important part of uh, people understanding exactly what's going on, is there, there are some people, obviously, that characterize this as uh, simply paying people to sit around and do nothing. And, boy, we can't afford to do that. Or, you know, they get out and get a job, et cetera. You've heard all these comments over the years. This is a, an income supplement uh, in many cases for people that are uh, sometimes unable to work, others trying to work, but obviously are very limited because of, of uh, physical and, and other restrictions. Uh, and, and this is giving these people a leg up so that they can better their circumstance. And you've just outlined some of the stories that you've heard, but it's, it's, it's really that hand up, I think, that's the key element here. Oh, absolutely. And already, excuse me, already we've seen individuals Um, who, once stabilized, and we talk about rent and food a lot, um, able to start thinking about their futures. I I find it interesting. We we don't realize that once you put people in a panic mode, uh, once you put people in a situation where they're worried about their basic survival, it's very difficult for the mind to think of the future. Once they feel that security, it's much easier to say, like some of our participants are already saying, hey, I want to go back to school in September, and they're already going to colleges and finding out how to enroll. And it's amazing, the transformation, just in a few months. Well, I mean, we're starting to hear some of these stories, and and this is, I think, what we wanted to hear, and we're starting to see some of the impacts that we wanted to see. Uh, people that had, uh, before this program came into place, uh, relying on thrift stores to get whatever clothing they could find, uh, basically feeding their families through food banks, and uh, and now they're into circumstances where they can actually go to a grocery store and, and buy and, and, and actually prepare meals because they've got that, that sort of an income. Uh, or to be able to actually go into a store and buy a winter coat, which is something that I guess previous to that, I guess was just a, a pipe dream for many of them. Indeed. Um and what's interesting, that was Alana that was able to buy her first winter coat ever in her life. And even then, it was frugal. I mean, you know, she didn't go out and spend $200 on a coat. I, I think it was approximately $60 that she spent. But it was thrilling. And for me, one of the most touching things I, um, I've heard was um, Tim Button locally. If uh, you've been to any uh, labor rallies or anti-poverty rallies, you've probably met Tim. He's also a participant in the Basic Income Pilot. And he was able, for the first time in years, to go home to Timmins to see his family. And we heard from him over the Christmas holidays. And his being thrilled... Um, not only to be home, which, of course, seeing family is always wonderful, but to actually shovel snow for his sister. Um, that, 
this money gave him the ability to feel like he could help his family. And we don't think about that. We talk so much about basic needs, and we don't think about um, the relationships that get devastated, family relationships, the ability to look forward, the things, quite frankly, we take for granted. Let me ask you about attitude, Laura, uh, sure. because you've you've you're living this. I mean, and uh, you've you're going down the same road that many of these people are going down these days. Uh, and and you made an interesting comment about uh, about how attitudes can change when this happens. You mentioned that people are less stressful, and that's a great aspect and a great outcome to this so far. But at the same time, once this happens, uh, there's an interesting phenomena where some people are actually almost hesitant to go and spend money or go to a grocery store because they're simply not used to it. They're, they're so ingrained in, in having to scrimp and save and, and scratch out whatever living they could that, uh, that this, this, this change in their lives right now is a little hard for them to, to get their heads around. Indeed. I'm, I'm one of those people, as you know. I've been on your show before. I used to be on ODSP for mm-hmm. approximately 12 years, and I'm working now, and it's enough to take me off the system. And for the first year, I actually felt guilty about buying a sweater. And again, like Elena Frugal, I'm still going to outlet stores. I'm not going to buy a you know $150 sweater. It's and I still felt guilty. And I guess one of my concerns for the pilot project, which I've shared with evaluators and um, people in the ministry, is that three years may not be enough to see an entire change in habit. Um, Being without for so long um, instills such a sense of fear for tomorrow that I have, um, through my own experiences, felt guilty when I've gone out and purchased groceries, and then the next week a bill will come up out of the blue, you know, something for my apartment building, a service, something that needed repaired, and feeling guilty that I spent that money on my own groceries, because now I couldn't pay the other bill. Well, what about that That that? attitude, and because you, you, point's well taken. This is a three-year pilot project. We know that. Uh, there's a provincial election coming up on June 7th. Uh, there's a concern I've heard from some people saying, well, you know, if there's a change of government, they could kill the program. And, and where does that leave us? Uh, you know, and even if they don't, after three years, what happens then? Does that necessarily mean that the government's going to adopt this or the government of the day may simply said, well, we're not going to do that anymore? Uh, there are some people that may take that opportunity and may be able to better themselves. Others are simply going to be right back to square one when this whole thing is over. Indeed. So there, there are a couple of things that go with that. Uh, one, we are still advocating for change on the social assistance front. Um, I was a member of the Income Security Reform Working Group, and we put out a report last November, and we need to change the system now. And it's no coincidence that we were doing that work at the same time they were preparing for a basic income pilot because it does need to change. And part of what we're talking about is what happens when you don't tie income to shelter, like BI? Um, You know, can we just have a program that helps people regardless of where they live and they get a fixed amount of money? Um, can you? Can we change the system 
so that people um, can access universal drug coverage, universal dental, uh, anyone in Ontario that's low income, and that you don't have to be on social assistance to get that help. And more importantly, how much should social assistance be? If we're seeing this with basic income, which is only 75% of our low-income measure, um, why are we still setting Ontario works rates at $721? And, you know, we recommend an immediate increase of 10% and more increases as the years go on because we know it's inadequate. And if we're seeing these changes in just a few months in individuals, then why are we continuing to harm them? These are changes we can make right now. Well, and that's part of the message. I I don't want anybody to naively think that, well, you know, let's put the toolkit away. We've got that solved now. This this, uh, this, uh, basic income thing has has got this poverty issue all fixed up now. Because that's not the case. It's it's one brick in that wall that needs to be built to, to reinforce our, our social services, we get that, but there's so much more. I mean, you know, you talked about, for instance, the well, the minimum wage debate, which is ongoing again, and it's, it's going to be an election issue, uh, and the, and the the income and the money that's granted for people that are on social assistance. Uh, there doesn't seem, in my mind, to be any science behind it. It seems to me to be an arbitrary number that says that's what we can afford to give them. That's not what they need. It's what we can afford to give them, and that's that's backward science, as far as I can see. Oh, absolutely. I. <laughs> I I think of it as, you know, uh, a pretty formula that someone's developed um, somewhere, even how we measure low income. So uh, some of the work I do with the roundtable, actually, as a campaign coordinator, is to put forward a bill called Bill 6, and it was presented by Paul Miller, uh, Stony Creek MPP. Uh, It's just to assess how much it costs to live in Ontario, and hey, why don't we put that number forward to the Minister of Community and Social Services to help determine what social assistance rates should be? It's, it's mind-boggling that we continue to develop policy around relative numbers. So, you know, wages have stagnated for 20 years, so why don't we take those stagnant <laughs> wages, divide it by 50%, and, hey, this is what you should live on. Um, it has nothing to do with how much housing costs, especially rentals. Yeah, let's not, let's not cloud the issue with facts, uh, okay, <laughs> like, like the cost of living and, and the cost of putting a roof over your head and the cost of groceries. Uh, so much more to talk about this. and uh, It's gratifying to see that uh, the information that we have, although it may just be anecdotal at this stage, is uh, showing some very positive signs. Laura, thanks as always. It's always great to have you on the program. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Laura Kateri, of course, from the uh, Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.